Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today on the What Fuels You podcast, I'm sitting down with Jeremy Lott, president of Sanmar. Family-owned since 1971, Sanmar is the largest supplier of apparel to the imprinted sportswear and promotional products market. Guided by their Sanmar family values, they employ over 4,000 people across their home office and 10 distribution centers. With offices in Hong Kong and San Pedro Sula, they manufacture in over 120 factories and in 23 countries. The over 70,000 Sanmar customers across the country rely on them to service everyone from Fortune 100s to your local soccer team with their imprinted peril needs. Through Sanmar, Jeremy is focused on improving the lives of their employees and the over 150,000 people who make products for Sanmar and the communities they live in. He is also an incredible philanthropist, husband, father, and lover of the outdoors. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Shauna. I'm Thanks calling you Jer. Me. Welcome, Jer. Um, okay, we're doing rapid fire. If you've listened to any podcasts, that's what we do. Great. Um, okay. What book are you currently reading? Uh, I'm, I'm leaving, reading Living with a Seal oh. by Jesse Isler. Yes. Yeah. It's, Wait, uh, that's so random. Uh, a friend gave it to me. It's kind of crazy. It's about this guy who I'm guessing Avi gave that to you. Avi <laughs> gave it to me. Okay, yes. Do you like it? Uh, I do like it. It's a quick read, and uh, I didn't know his story. His wife started Spanx. He yes. started Marquee Jet with Kenny Dichter, so it's kind yes. of a cool story. Okay, you ready? Yep. If you weren't living in Seattle, where would you be living? If I wasn't living in Seattle, there's a handful of cities I would live in. I have to live near the water. Probably San Francisco would be, like, my number two choice. Um, I love Vancouver, British Columbia. I love Chicago, San Diego. But somewhere I have to be able to see the water. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Okay, stand-up paddleboarding or wakeboarding? Stand-up (laughs) paddleboarding. This one's from David. Mustard or ketchup on your hot dog? I'm like, I, I eat a lot of foods. I don't like condiments. I don't like mustard. I don't like ketchup. I don't like mayo. Oh, I, would, I didn't know this I'm, about no, you. No, I'm like not a condiment guy. No condiments on anything. Almost no condiments. Soy sauce on your sushi? I, I'll eat soy sauce on sushi. But okay. there's no, like, I like hamburgers plain. Note to plain. self, I will not be serving you any condiments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Do you prefer a V-neck or a crew neck? V-neck. Nice. If you could ski anywhere in the world, where would you ski? Well, I'm... I'm Excited! My uh, bucket list is Japan, and I'm taking my dad there for his 70th birthday present. My brother and I are taking him to Japan this oh, winter. So does that's, he know? He knows. That's so, so cool. That's where I'm excited to go ski. Favorite type of cuisine? Probably sushi. Oh, nice. Yeah, but you eat anything. I eat everything. Yeah. What do we call it? Omakase. Just not, con- just not condiments. Not condiments. <laughs> condiments need not apply. Yeah. Okay. All right. I know this story, but I think our listeners are going to love this story. Um, I want to know, just like, take me back to the beginning, your story of origin, like uh, starting with your grandparents. Where are you coming from? So I grew up uh, I grew up in Seattle. Uh, my father had started Sanmar in 1971. So Sanmar was a really small business when we were kids. I always tell people when you have kids in when you have a small business like your kids are free labor so we of course we worked in the I business feel like i remember you were like driving tractors and stuff well we would go on weekends and we would literally like fold invoices and stuff them in envelopes we would go help unload trailers i mean as a kid we were you know you know cleaning the aisles of the warehouse but this was a really small company um, and but as we grew the company became kind of you know bigger more successful it was always something though that i wanted to be part of it was really kind of part of our family yeah uh, it's all one and the same it's like there is no separation when uh, it's that small exactly and i mean i so i tell people i've worked at sanmar since birth which is <laughs> partially true if you look at our the very first catalog we ever did which was about 1979 um there's me riding a like a tricycle like on this. the cover of it 
Yes. I feel like I remember that. Yeah. That's so crazy. And so, but you as a child, so you were working, like doing these things on the weekends. Um, but what else did you like to do for fun? And um, who were you kind of more like, your mom or your dad? I, I mean, I liked to do kind of, I think, regular kid stuff. I played sports. I played basketball. I played tennis. I, I loved to ski. My dad was a ski patrolman. We skied every weekend when I was kids. Um, we water skied. We loved to... So, so you know, I... I I like to do pretty normal things, but I'd have to say I was more like my mom. Um, and it's interesting because people who know me and my dad now say, well, you're just like your dad. I always thought I was more like my mom. She was the more, um, she, she was the kind of kind, um, warm kind of person in the family. My dad was busy. My dad was try, starting this business. He was traveling a lot. He was working really hard. Uh, so yeah, I always wanted to be like my mom. She was that person that everyone wanted to be around. She was kind of magnetic personality. I don't know if I had that, but I loved her warmth and I thought that was the person I wanted to be. Yeah. And so if you hadn't done this business, I guess, what if you were born and realized, like, I have a fascination with science and biology and I want to be a doctor? Would that have been um, welcome or was it kind of like, hey, this is what you're doing? You know, it's hard. I I think there was pressure to to want to be in the business for my parents, but it's also like the only thing I ever remember wanting to do. I would literally close my eyes at like my tenth birthday party and like blow out the candle and wish to be like President Sandmark. So I cute. Mean, like the... And then Grandpa Manny also worked for the company, right? Yes. So my dad started the business. My my yeah. grandfather was kind of this serial entrepreneur, so he started a lot of different businesses. Most of them weren't successful, but when Sandmar started to be more successful, my dad was traveling. And had my grandfather come work with him. So my grandfather mm -hmm. kind of ran the office while my dad was out selling. Yeah. And your uh, dad just took the name because it was like a, a company that your grandfather had that wasn't successful. And But the name and the letterhead and everything was available. So he just said, Yeah. I mean, he, he literally, he'd started a construction company called Sandmart that he named after his kids, Sandra and Marty. Uh, it had this idea for these steel framed houses that just didn't work. But and when that company was successful, my dad literally just had no money when he was starting Sanmar, mm -hmm. and so my because it did, had said, your dad, grandpa had success at that point, or he was more of those the, one of those serial entrepreneurs that just hadn't hit it quite yet. Yeah, I mean, like you know, he did fine, but he was not. He really hadn't hit it. I mean, his biggest success, he was able to buy a building in downtown Seattle called the Arctic Building, and so mm. his biggest piece of his career and the thing he was most successful at was running the Arctic Building. It's now a hotel with a really yeah. cool bar in the lobby. I was like, I feel like yes. Yeah, it's um, it's actually like a great place to go have a drink if you're downtown. <laughs> it it uh, but that's what he did. That was the most successful thing he did, kind of in his career. And when he sold that. Um, that's when he came and worked with my dad. Mm -hmm. And so it's just you and Jordan, your younger brother. Yes. And did Jordan also want to work in the family business? I think Jordan wanted to work in the family business as well. He also grew up in it. But when I graduated from business school and I came into the business, Jordan was already working there. He was younger, but he'd kind of gone to the business right out of college. And he was really trying to find what his path was. He wasn't necessarily um, happy doing what he was doing in the business. And we worked for several years with a family business consultant that helped us think about how we wanted to structure kind of the, the family and the family business. Right. And out of that came the birth of the company my brother runs, which is called Lake Washington Partners, which is a real estate development and management firm. And, and he's had a really successful career in real estate. So he's part of the family business, but but we're running separate businesses. And yeah. We're, we're both partners in both businesses, um, but we have kind of this individual areas where we can both be successful. I think that successful. that's nice and that sets you up for success because then you're not tripping over each other and wondering like who's in which lane because you have very clear uh, delineation between roles. I think we have very different personalities, which is can be really an amazing strength because we're good at different things. We think about the world in different ways. It also makes it hard sometimes to work together on a day-to-day -day basis. So this allows us to be partners and own these businesses together and to really benefit from each other's strengths, but without, like you said, tripping on each other. And, and so for us, it's been a really successful family business structure. Yeah. Well, knowing that your path was already kind of clear and your 10th birthday, you're blowing out the candles, you're thinking, I pretty much have a job. What fueled you to be so driven? And, um, you know, you went to Lakeside, a really hard school. Obviously, education was a value of the families. But how did they um, talk about that? Or was it just kind of a given? I was very aware that Yes, there'd be this opportunity, but I wasn't going to come in and 
and and run this business. And I really had to prove that I could kind of be successful. So there was a couple of things. Hard work was, I think, my dad's ultimate um, value. Uh, I think in the way he grew up, the way his father grew up, hard work in itself was a value and really mm-hmm. tried to instill that kind of in us. And so there wasn't this ever this idea that I could just come in and run the company. That you'd have to prove yourself and kind of start at the bottom, sweeping floors, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. I mean, so we, you know, we worked there in summers and in, in high school. But after college, I knew I had to, um, not only did I have to, it was an expectation from my family, but it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to be successful on my own outside. So I, I um, went into investment banking. This is like late 90s, yeah. so I'm doing tech investment banking. You might as well. If you're going to go big, just go huge. Right. Investment banking, like, yeah. crazy. So it was. it's a terrible job. Uh, anyone who's done it thinks it's a terrible job. Yeah. I don't know if you heard Chad Robbins' interview on here, but he also did it. And he was talking about like sleeping under his desk and like just to- the crazy. It's like this torture that they put you through. Totally. I mean, they see you. They look at you as like a copy machine. And they're mm-hmm. like, how hard could we work this? Like, yeah, resource it's like a rite of passage. Had. Yeah. So it was, it, I, but you know, it gave me a, a lot of confidence. It gave me the ability to know I could do something on my own. You know, when you work for your family business, you get to the point where it's like your dad signing your paycheck, and so you have to have the sense of accomplishment that I know I could be successful on my own. So I, I, that was great experience for me. Was that, that right after college? You went to Emory. Yep. I got a job in in. Uh, I originally got a job actually in Menlo Park working for Piper Jaffray, which at the mm-hmm. time was a Minneapolis-based uh, uh, investment bank. They were big in healthcare, and they wanted to be a tech investment bank on the West Coast. I went for training. There was a managing director who wanted to open an office in Seattle. I went with him, opened up his office and helped open you know this office in Seattle, and um, kind of went from there. So I did that for three years, and then went to Kellogg at Northwestern and got mm-hmm. my MBA. Yeah, so you went back and got your MBA. Was that something that you felt was a necessity or was it something that was giving you space to kind of figure out um, what role you would want to be maybe pursuing within Sanmar or like why? So I always tell people who are interested in getting their MBA, I think it's it's a huge investment in time and money in, in kind of key career years. So it really has to help you move from like where you are today to where you want to go. And, and if that's not, what gets you there, then I wouldn't suggest an MBA for everyone. I think for me, I felt like it would give me one, uh, credibility coming into the business that I'd had that. And then two, if you look at the coursework I took, it was, wouldn't make sense to anyone else, except it made sense for me going into the company Mm -hmm. that I was in. But the biggest value I took from my time at Kellogg was I got to know a guy named John Ward. And John was a professor there who ran the Center for Family Business. And he is like the dean of uh, family business as a something that was studied in business schools. He actually just retired last year, and I got to know John really well. and And through him, really thought a lot about how I wanted to come into the business and how I wanted to kind of shape my that's, career. That's a gift to meet someone like that. That's it was amazing. it was amazing. Did you have any other teachers along the way who either inspired you or doubted you? It's actually kind of a fun story or funny story. I the the teacher that I think influenced me the most. Was actually a teacher I had in high school. His name was Tom Dolger, who was an English teacher at at, at Lakeside. Uh, I he really um, school was was pretty easy for me. It was pretty easy for me to be successful in it. And I got into his English class and started writing and was getting not great grades. <laughs> you're like you're actually not so smart after <laughs> totally. all. Totally. And he said, you know, look, uh, you're not that great of a writer, but I will work with you. And spent a lot of time with me. And and I would tell you that today, I think one of my strengths is writing, and I really uh, and my ability to communicate, kind of, uh, and and I think Tom Dolger was a huge piece of that. So last year, I was skiing, and I saw him like across the lodge at a ski resort, um, and I was like, that guy looks like my high school English teacher, except he hasn't aged a day since high school. Mm-hmm. W- went up to him. And ended up going back to the school, had lunch with him. He retired actually last year. It was his kind of last year of teaching. Um, but he was an amazing guy who who absolutely influenced me a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. I have to say my teachers at Lakeside were definitely the biggest influences by a landslide of any teacher I ever had. Um, I want to skip ahead to Sanmar. And so first when you came in, first tell everybody what Sanmar is and what they do. Because not everybody, you guys are under the radar in certain ways. Yeah, so Sanmar... Uh, manufactures and sources mostly clothing, but we do bags and hats, um, accessories like towels and robes around the world. Wait, we, did you say robes? Robes. I <laughs> need do, a robe. We do robe. We do nice robes. Um, we 
warehouse them, and we sell them to people who put logos on them for for corporations, for schools, for teams, anything you can imagine. We like, a... get people talent robes. Be like, get out of my <laughs> way. <laughs> that's awesome. Anything you can imagine with a logo on it. That's okay. what that's what we do. We don't actually logo the product. We our customers are either the people who logo them themselves or or send it out to a third party. So when I want logos for my company and I reach out to one of the many people who provide swag. Yes. They're then going to you to get the original garments That's right. or the SKU. How many yeah. SKUs are there? Well, we carry, I don't know, close to 90,000 SKUs today. Okay. And what's your, what's the best selling? The best selling is the PC54. Is that like the polo? Basic white t-shirt. Yeah. Basic t-shirt. Yeah. And that retails for like $15? I wish. I mean, we sell that t-shirt for about, I don't know, $1.70 today. No, but like what can I get it for? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends what logo you're putting on it, how many locations, how many colors. When you're talking about a basic T-shirt, the printing can cost a lot more than the shirt. Ah. I It's actually, like, I think, and, and I don't, I'm not sure anyone else agrees with me, but I think the, the most efficient supply chain for any product in the world is a T-shirt. If you think about it, like, we grow, tex- we grow cotton in West Texas. We send it to a, a mill in North Carolina where they spin it into yarn. We take that yarn. We send it to Honduras on a boat where we knit it, dye it, finish it, cut it, sew it into a T-shirt, put it back on a boat to Miami. It hits our Jacksonville cross dock where we put it on a train and then to a truck all the way to Seattle. Wait, this I, is real? This is real, and I sell it to you for $1.70. It's unbelievable, and it's a nice T-shirt. So the the supply chain on a T-shirt, I think, is really crazy because of the scale that we use. I mean, if you think about uh, we're dyeing a T-shirt, if it's a red T-shirt or black T-shirt, we're dyeing them in 3,000-pound um, dye machines. Just the scale of everything is just really massive. And then the amount of, um, you know, just kind of uh, industrialization that's gone into every part of that supply chain to make it so efficient. And how do you make decisions about where to do these things? Like why Honduras? Yeah. Our warehouse network is designed really around kind of UPS delivery. So we've kind of optimized it so that we basically can deliver a t-shirt or jacket next day to everyone in the United States. So any t- order we take before 5 o'clock today, our customers will get it tomorrow. But the, our manufacturing network is really designed around different parts of the world have different specializations and different labor um, requirements, different trade preferences. So we may make a cotton T-shirt in Honduras using open-end yarn because that yarn is only spun in the United States. But we might make a ring-spun sweatshirt in Pakistan because we can use um, coarse count cotton from Pakistan, but I can't make a t-shirt in Pakistan because they don't have fine enough yarns there. I might make a, a performance t-shirt in Africa today. We were working in Ethiopia and Tanzania, Madagascar, Ghana to take advantage of a Goa, but I would make a really higher end performance polo in Vietnam because I need a higher level of sewing skill and um, and and just needlework around that product. And so obviously you know your business inside and out. And every yeah. time I talk to you, I'm blown away. Not that you wouldn't, but sometimes I'm I'm blown away by the level of detail that, A, you retain, <laughs> <laughs> and B, that you're just so knowledgeable about who does the kind of initial legwork to do the research and understand the countries, the laws around those countries, what it's going to mean. And also just some of these countries, the way you've described it when we were even talking last weekend about... Um, I mean, some of these some of these countries you're in are, you know, they're not developed at all. Yeah. They have no running water practically. So you're providing jobs for entire communities. Yeah. So we have a a pretty sophisticated um, sourcing manufacturing arm. Um, and that's why we have offices in Hong Kong and in Honduras to have local people who are in the ground, kind of in region, who really understand Asia, who really understand Central America in significant ways. And these are people with, you know. 10, 20, 30 years experience in garment manufacturing. So we understand the world really well. Um, In 2012, there was a factory that collapsed in Bangladesh and over a thousand people died. Bangladesh was a really tough country to do, is still a really tough country to do business in. Um, The the factories at the time were in these kind of old buildings. They were in the middle of Dhaka. You'd have like markets on the ground floor and factories kind of above it. Um, and, And no building codes, no safety codes. Anyway, um, when the factory collapsed, we really kind of, it was a soul searching moment for me a little bit thinking, are we part of some sort of global problem around, um, exploitive manufacturing, child labor, you know, sure. unforced labor? Are we doing kind of bad things in the world? Um, and 
I had spent the last 15 years traveling and seeing factories and felt like there were really great factories and, and partners who were doing great things in the world. And at the time, so we made a switch, like mentally for us, it became less about, we used to think of compliance as don't do bad stuff. So like, don't right, dump don't, your dye yes. in the water, don't hire kids, like don't do bad things. And we would audit to make sure we weren't doing bad things in the world. We, we really switched our paradigm completely to like do good stuff. And so a huge piece of who we manufacture with and where we manufacture is what they're doing in their community, how they're helping the people who manufacture the product, um, how engaged they are. And so that's become a huge paradigm shift for us. So I was in Haiti last week or two weeks ago. Um, factories in the town of Wanameath, which has like 70% unemployment. There's no opportunities for the people. There's literally not, there's no running water. There's electricity two hours a day. If you work in this park in Wanameath, the industrial park where a factory is, you have clean water, you have childcare, you have um, healthcare. There's doctors and nurses kind of on site for the people. So the difference in what your life is if you have a job, um, you know, making shirts for Sanmar in, in Wanameath versus if you don't, it's a stark kind of difference. Mm-hmm. So we've really tried to do manufacturing the right way. Um, and then the other piece that I got really excited about at the time was, and I started to kind of like geek out about this a little bit, was the the number one predictor of almost any like positive development metric, whether it was life expectancy or infant mortality or GDP growth for a country was economic security of women and empowerment of women. And so Amen. Yeah, well and and our industry has this ability at scale to hire and train and employ a lot of women um, in countries where there's not lots of opportunities for formal employment. So we went to we have a factory in Ghana, for instance, uh, and, and when I was there, now it's about two years ago, met with the U.S. ambassador to Ghana and the US, head of USAID for West Africa who helped invest in this factory. And they said, we love this project because it wasn't a huge capital investment. It was a couple of million dollar capital investment that's employing 1,800 people. And the ambassador said to me, you know, most of these women, if they didn't have this job, they'd be headporters. And I said, well, what's a headporter? And he said, literally like carrying, carrying things the, yeah, on their heads. On their heads. Um, and so in a place where there's really no opportunities, this factory has provided them. And it was kind of cool. I don't know if you remember last year, Melania Trump went on her first solo trip overseas. She, her, she went to Africa and her first stop was in Accra and Ghana. And she went the first day to this factory. Um, just three weeks ago, a month ago, maybe, um, Nancy Pelosi led a, a delegation of congressional Democrats to Africa. And the first place she went was to this factory. So it's bipartisan factory, but it's like, it's been, uh, they've used it. USAID has used it as kind of a showcase of oh, what, for sure. like how development can work. And how much, I mean, this it's obvious that the company in general and that the family values, which I want to get into, um, are kind of guiding you and they're, you're using them as your guiding post for how you do business. And it's very heart-led, especially when you said that shift that happened about not not doing the wrong thing, but really being proactive about doing the right thing. But then you talked about the capital investment. How do you weigh those things? Because I would think that the capital investment of creating an entire infrastructure would be huge. Mm-hmm. But like long-term better, but short-term, nothing's there before you get there. Sure. So when we, so most of our factories are, uh, we don't own. Most of them are, are, are third parties that own the factories. The only manufacturing that we actually own is in, in, is in Honduras. Um, and we have about 12,000 employees in, in San Pedro Sula today and kind of that manufacturing. But the example in Ghana, that factory is 100% of its production is for Sanmar. And so when they're starting the factory, what we'll do is we'll give them orders, we'll give them commitments, we'll guarantee volume mm. so that when they, so they go to plan. build that factory, they can kind of make the right investments around that. Without that, there's no investment in Ghana. So I, I say my factory, even though I don't own that factory, because we are, um, we're like I said, we're 100% of their production, but we're integral in them making those kind of investments because they have a guaranteed customer who's saying, yeah, we're going to take this volume from you. So we partner really deeply with our manufacturing partners mm-hmm. um, across the world. And we think of them as our factories. They're Sanmar employees in every one of those factories doing auditing and kind of QC work too. Mm-hmm. And so even though that sewer in that factory doesn't work for me. I still think of it as our factory and that's our mentality. Yeah. And so I'm going to switch gears a little bit ish. You talked about company values. Um, who came up with them and when and how often are you evaluating them? So I had gone to this, um, I'd gone back to Kellogg for an executive education class that was leading the family business. I was kind of coming into being the president of the company. And 
I think one of the things that came back from that class was this idea of, you know, we'd always, culture had always been really important to us, but when the company was smaller, you just showed up and you saw the way Marty lived, worked yeah. and you just lived it. We didn't really talk about our values. As the company had gotten bigger, I thought it was important for us not just to kind of, uh, to be able to articulate these values in a more clear way and say, here's what's important to us. Here's what we believe in. Um, and so we got together people from all over the company, um, people from every one of our warehouses. We brought everybody to Seattle and we sat in our biggest conference room and we just started talking about what were the values that we thought, not where we necessarily we wanted to be, but where... Like what, what the, words remind you of yeah, how you feel when uh, you work here? That's right. Like, And so we started talking about certain things. Um, we had like this number five in our head because that's what we wanted. We ended up with six because we couldn't <laughs> decide. It was a really cool process and, and it was... Uh, it was absolutely something that's been, uh, I think, really helped transform the way we business. Like one of our core values is to is make a difference. Well, that coincided with what are we doing in these communities for the people who make our product? What are we doing for our customers? One of ours is invest in each other. So we think a lot about how we can do mentoring, how we can do training, how we kind of can build our employees and hire with from within. So we really, um, you know, we try to live these values kind of every day and make them something that's not just you know, a poster on the wall, but something that's really important to us. Mm -hmm. I have I have them actually in front of me. I'm a cheat sheet. So deliver quality, passionately serve, do the right thing and be nice. Do the right thing and be nice. How do those differentiate? So I think um, be nice was my dad's kind of mantra from the I beginning. Think he does play like no assholes. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that was really it. He said, be nice and tell yeah. the truth. Like that was his mantra. And so, you know, and honestly, it was just, Life's too short. I don't yeah. want to work with people. Like you can be, I, I think today's business world, you can be, you have to be professional maybe everywhere, mm -hmm. but you don't have to be nice. You can be a jerk and be successful with a lot of companies. And we were just like, nope, that's not who we're going to work with. So yeah. it'd be nice for us to do the right thing. We were talking a lot about ethics and integrity and tell the truth. And this person in this room just set, stood up and said, for me, it's just do the right thing. And we were yeah. like, oh, you know what? We like that. And so we wrote it down. So it's an integrity piece, but it's also when you're talking to a customer, when you're talking to a vendor, like what's mm -hmm. the right thing to do? do? Do you give your employees some room? I can't remember which company. Oh, maybe it's the Ritz-Carlton. There was some book I think that they wrote where they were like everybody has like $2,000 of kind of in a kitty. Yeah. And they can make a $2,000, up to $2,000 worth of decisions that tip it towards the customer. You know, I meet do with all Do you have anything of, like that? Well, kind of. I mean, I meet with all of our new, like, sales staff, both on the phone and, and kind of our outside sales force. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of meetings. I know. Well, one of the things I tell to all of them is nobody will ever get, you know, in trouble, uh, quote unquote, Sanmar, for doing what they think is the right thing for a customer. So if you told me, hey, customer needed these thousand shirts and I had to give them to them for free because we'd screwed this up and it was the right thing to do, like we're good. Where I'm get really disappointed in our team is if they said, look, I really thought that was the right thing to do, but that's just not, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't escalate it. I didn't push that. I said, or I took the answer of that's just not how we do business or something like yeah, that. That's so annoying. You know, it drives me crazy. Because it's still, you probably still think even though the company is so huge, the magnitude is ginormous. It's still your baby. It's still your representative of your you, like the human being. And so it should feel like that in every decision. I I am I take the business really personally. I care uh, a lot about our customers. Uh, you know, I care maybe too much. If, we, if there's a customer who's disappointed, it like ruins my day. I could have a room full of, you know, 50 investment bankers. And if I've got an upset customer on the phone, like I'll no, that makes waiting. sense. You that know, totally makes it, sense. And, and your employees. I mean, the things that you do for your employees is like over the top. How did you come up with those as far as benefits or just the things that you're doing to help people continue to develop their careers? Yeah. I was talking one time to a banker and I said to them, you know, we don't have any contracts with our customers. So they can buy from me today, buy from somebody else tomorrow. I don't really have any intellectual property. Like, I don't have a patent on anything. Uh, my products aren't that differentiated. You can buy a blue polo for me and one from somebody else. Um, I tend to be more expensive than my competitors. And he said, okay, well, that's all great. How have you gotten to the size you have? And I said, because we are laser focused on taking care of our customers. And that our customers know that. And at the end of the day, I think they actually make more money buying from me than they do from someone else because we care kind of so much about their success. Uh, and that takes people to do that. So if I really take care of the people who work at Sanmar, they take care of our customers. And so that's 
a huge piece of my job is taking care of our team so that they can take care of our customers. Yeah. I want to talk about the the culture piece and how you recruit people um, with the intention of a succession planning and mm-hmm. how are, are they going to be the right people for you five, ten years from now because nobody leaves Sanmar, <laughs> and and also how you weave. Um, the values into your interview process? Like, how do you vet for, like, be nice? Yeah. So, I, I mean, and when I meet with these new people, I tell them that. I said, you You're know, like, we, you we try and best screen behavior? for being nice. I mean, I think it is something, you know, we do personality assessments and we do different things as mm-hmm. part of Which it. Which one do you use? I, I'm not sure. Well, I'm curious because there's, there's so much criticism out there Yeah, different ones. I, I think it's a gut feeling for me. I mean, I try to take most of the interviews that I do and turn them into conversations more than, like, um, me just asking mm-hmm. questions. But I it's not scalable for you to meet. I mean, you have how many employees? Uh, a lot. But I'm, you know, our senior, yeah, if it's a senior employee, then I'm, I'm, I am spending time kind of with them. And, and I mean, we really do try to look for those values. I very rarely have I hired somebody. I can think of maybe one occasion where I had somebody who just didn't have the skill to do the job. Every bad hire has been because they weren't a good culture fit at Sandmark. It doesn't mean they're not great at their mm-hmm. job. It's just this wasn't the right place for them. And so the people I've found... That's what, that's what keeps people like me in business because you can't teach that. Like computer algorithm can't vet for like the those nuanced soft skills. Totally. Like skills are very measurable, the hard skills, but like the other stuff of like how you overcome adversity and how you deal with feedback. and It's critical. So I've found that the people whose like personal values line up well with our... Sanmar family values are the people that tend to really want to stay at Sanmar and build a career there. The people whose values are are different, um, you know, it might be a job for a while, but those aren't the people who stay. I'll I'll give you an example. All of our salespeople, none of them are commissioned. So they all get kind of a salary and a bonus, and the bonus is almost guaranteed. Um, It's a pretty different sales organization than, than most companies. And every time we hire somebody from an organization who kind of takes that, like, I eat what I kill, I'm an aggressive salesperson, it's my customer, that's not a really good culture fit kind of at Zanmar. And mm-hmm. so, But how do you keep um, those people? I understand that completely because sometimes we have that in our company, yeah. different um, opinions about how to motivate salespeople. Um, but then there's always the fear of the kind of freeloaders who just kind of hang out. How do you weed those out? You, you know... I, I, it's not that we've never made a mistake on kind of hiring somebody. I think it becomes pretty clear um, if they're there that that's what they want to do. I mean, we we certainly have metrics where we can track what people are doing, how many calls they're making, who that they, what they're seeing, what their follow up looks like with customers. Mostly, we talk to the customers, mm-hmm. and you know, the customers will tell you, you know, like, hey, Susie hasn't been in to see me in six months, and when she's here, she's kind of checked out. Or you know what? Susie's here all the time. She's following up. She's super proactive. She's great. And and that's what we hear 99% of the time, and yeah. that's what we're looking for. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And what are you doing? Are you doing anything kind of deliberate to make sure that you are playing a key role in um, kind of equal pay and making sure women are getting equal you know, I think that we, um, it's actually, uh, first off, we we have a lot of women who are in the kind of senior positions at Sanmar. Um, it, I'm not sure that has been an intentional, like, hey, we want to have X percentage of our senior management team um, be women, but we've been fortunate to have a lot of great women with, with uh, a lot of skills in senior roles kind mm-hmm. of company. What about the equal pay part, the part where you make sure that women paychecks are reflective of their skills yeah. and equal with men. So a couple of years ago, we never, I, I was 100% positive that there was never an intention at Sanmar to pay women less than we pay men. Um, what I wasn't sure though was, do, you know, there was there some bias? sort of like yeah. some unconscious thing? So I said to our team, I said, so show me, like go through kind of how we're paying people at different levels and tell me if if we have gotten here somehow. Um and the answers were, were pretty positive that we had not underpaid kind of women. And actually, we've spent a lot of time in the last year creating um, uh, kind of pay ranges for every job function in the company mm-hmm. that we kind of understand. So we we're becoming a lot more, I think even at our scale, we were informal in a lot of the ways we did things. And so we've had to become a little bit more formal. I mean, we've, we have never had a board of directors before. We are uh, implementing one at the end of this year. And, and 
it was going to be my dad and my brother and I and two independent directors. Mm -hmm. And so you had three men. Um, we wanted to make sure at least one of the independent directors was a woman. That was really important to us to mm -hmm. have that diversity of thought. And, and so, you know, we hired a search firm that, that kind of led that. And that was a key direction. And I'm uh, super excited about the woman that we've uh, hired for that role. And, and yeah, she's going to be amazing. Super, super exciting. And so right now, how are decisions made? Because I know you're running the company. And what role does your dad play? And how does that all work itself out as far as big decisions? So I'll back up a little bit when when... I got out of Kellogg and we started, I started working at Sandmar. We hired this family business consultant and his name was Otis Baskins. He was a professor at Pepperdine at the time. And he, um, he said to my dad, he said, we're going to start succession planning. And my dad said, well, I'm not retiring. Like, like 30 soon. years, how long is this yeah, long no, ago? Like 20 years ago. That's and awesome. I, and, and I, he said, Otis said, well, that's exactly why we're going to start now. Our goal was that we had that nobody noticed. Our customers didn't notice, our employees didn't notice, our vendors didn't notice, that it would be this really long transition place over you know a long period of time. And I think we've done a really good job of that. So um, it's been several years since my dad's now had um, kind of real um, direct reports in the, in, in the business. But a few years ago, I asked him actually to come back and to kind of lead our distribution function because I was um, having him groom somebody to kind of take that role. And he's, he's done that now. My dad's um, main role right now is building this board of directors. He'll be the chairman of the board. And that will give him a great um, governance role and an involved kind of role in the business. But he will forever um, be involved because it's his, it's his baby. Mm -hmm. Um, and Plus, he's 70 going on 50. Yeah. Um, we're looking at doing some significant investments in automation in our distribution centers. And I said, I'd love your eyes on it because, you know, he was in the lead. You know, we were we started really as a distribution company, and he led that for almost 50 years. He gets distribution better than almost anyone else I've ever met. And so um, he's helping uh, to be involved in kind of that project today. But he also gives me a lot of... Um, autonomy to make kind of everyday business decisions and to really mm -hmm. run the business. And I think this board will give us a good structure for those things that are not such everyday decisions. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens when there's a mistake? How is that handled? Is it like, hey, I want you to fall so that you can learn? Because it really is the only way to learn is to have little failures is to go, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. Yeah. I think at every stage in my career, from the time I started, like when I graduated from Kellogg and I was like working in our pricing team, not at a super high level to today, He's always giving me a little bit more responsibility than I could handle at the time, like just a little bit more so that if I failed, I wasn't going to fall too far. <laughs> um, Not going to take us but, off course. But, right. But you could kind of always be successful. I think that was a key piece in kind of my career. I've definitely made bad decisions, but not decisions that like came back to haunt us in like really significant ways. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, absolutely. I'm so fortunate to have him as a as a mentor um, and and a lot of other great managers at Sanmar who've helped my career along the way. I think one of the things he did really smart was most of his senior management team was 10 years younger than him. Uh, several of them are retiring or have retired in the last couple of years, but they really recognized that, um, you know, they needed to mentor me for the kind of the next generation of leadership in the business. And they were really wonderful with their time and, uh, uh, you know, giving me help kind of along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's your, I always ask this because I'm just curious, and I think as we get older, we start to know our, um, what our special sauce is or kind of our ninja skill. If you weren't at Sanmar and you were working somewhere else, what role would you be in? I mean, probably a leadership role, maybe CEO, but what would be your, like, this guy is your I don't know, XYZ I, I, guy? I, I feel like I'm unemployable in any other <laughs> career today. I, you know, after spending the last 20 years in imprintable sportswear. Um, no, I don't know. You know, I, You're so unemployable, it feels like a, Seriously. It feels like, you know, I think I'm a good uh, strategic thinker. I was about to say that, I, and I, I just was I guessing. Mean, I mean, I think I have an ability to, to um, you know, to kind of think far, to think far in advance in terms of where the business is going and to try to kind of move it in that direction. Um, I think that's probably the mm -hmm. thing that do I do. Do you like managing people? You know, I like working with people. Like, I'm not a great, like, doing reviews and doing the part of managing. Like, I'm not very good at that. I, I, I don't enjoy that. Or I, holding people accountable. Do you, I mean, I hate that part. I, you know, <laughs> I... Just do it. I, right. And I have, you know, I think the, the people, though, who have, like, really risen to kind of the se most senior levels at Sanmar are the people who recognize that, like, 
you don't need a ton of kind of handholding along the way that they are almost entrepreneurs in their own right and they have um and that my job is to like give them guidance to give them uh resources and to help them kind of build their business you know we have we've been really innovative in things we did you know 10 years ago if you said to me um, you'd own manufacturing in Central America. I'd said you were crazy. Today we've got 12,000 employees That's there. It's amazing. We invested last year in a yarn extrusion facility making polyester yarn. Never in my wildest dreams would I think we would do those things, but they've kind of made sense along the way. Um, and so... Uh, it, it's been really exciting, but that's not been driven by me necessarily. It's been driven by a team that kind of really sees a future. And it's my job to kind of say. Well, it's good that they feel safe coming to you and that also that you're saying, hey, no idea is off the table. Uh, absolutely. I think that's what's great about Sanmar. I think mm-hmm. uh, if you come there waiting for somebody to tell you what your job is, it's the wrong place. If you come yeah. there and say like, hey, I'm going to go create this, it's an amazing place to work. Yeah. And I also can see probably because your brain is always going that you would probably be bored if you were just doing like business as usual. Like the fact that you're still learning this far into the business and you will continue to learn, I think will keep you young and engaged and continue to be so psyched about I, the business. I think if you're not learning and and growing, it becomes, yeah, it'd be really tough for me. Mm-hmm. In today's world, how are you and Sanmar thinking about sustainability and climate change? Yeah, I, mean, I think the good news for us is the way we think about sustainability and apparel kind of supply chain also is how we think about um, managing costs in the uh, apparel supply chain. So we think about things like power and water and how much water we use, how, and, and those things can actually work together. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In Honduras, we have the largest solar array in Central America on the roof of our building. Um, our partner there has built a 43 megawatt power generation facility to uh, that runs on renewable green fuels. It's a biomass called king grass. Uh, so those were all uh, very intentional to help us think about how we manufacture at the lowest possible cost, but also in a really sustainable way. Water is a huge issue in the apparel supply chain. So we've done a lot to figure out how we manage our water use. And there's some really interesting innovations coming. So we're moving more and more towards pre-colored yarns. Um, If you think about um, polyester yarn, traditionally you would extrude like a white yarn and then you would dye it a certain color. Well, if you can actually dye the chip, uh, when you extrude the yarn, it's already the color. So you just knit it and you've got your colored shirt. It saves a significant amount of water in kind of the process and saves costs over the long run too. And so there's a lot of really interesting innovations that are coming around uh, in the apparel supply chain on how to use less water, how to use cleaner, renewable energies. And we're really excited about a lot of those investments. That's amazing. And are people aware of these things? Like, Because I know that sometimes now people want to do business with um, with companies that are doing the right thing. I think more and more, in fact, we have a shirt like coming out this year that we're calling the Retee, and it's it's made out of pre-consumer waste, so the cuttings of other T-shirts, so it doesn't have to have any, um, any water, any dyes to create this T-shirt. And so uh, now it's a little bit more expensive than a conventional kind of T-shirt, and so we'll see how it sells, but we're really excited about some of these You should of be uses. excited. The challenge is it's a little bit hard for consumers to kind of wrap their head around. Everyone understands things like organic cotton or recycled polyester. When you talk about um, biomass fuel generation, it's just a little bit harder for people to understand. But the alternative in a country like Honduras is to burn bunker fuel, which is a really dirty petroleum product that produces acid rain. So if you can switch from bunker to more renewable energies, there's a huge environmental kind of win. I also know that you're doing a lot with your philanthropic endeavors and giving back to some of these communities where you're doing business. You're also so philanthropic within your own community. How do you prioritize where to give back, and, and how does that um, how does that come into the home as far as talking about it with the kids? Yeah, so I think one, on and when we think about the communities where we manufacture, we think we take a lot from those communities, and it's our responsibility to give back kind of to them. And so along with our partners, we look for opportunities to partner with them for um, how we develop those communities further, whether it's clean water projects, whether it's, um, you know, childcare, other things that we might be doing in those communities. It's a piece of how we make a decision on where we want to source is how invested that partner is and what they're doing in the community. So we can really encourage through our buying power, um, significant development in communities around the world. 
Sanmar chooses a charity every year to support as a company, and then the whole company rallies around it. So this year, we chose the Bailey Boucher House, which is a home for homeless people with HIV/AIDS, located in kind of Seattle, and it is the, you know, it's the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable population. Ten percent of the homeless population in Seattle is HIV positive. And um, for people to manage that disease, they need some stability. And it's really hard when you are homeless. And so this is an amazing organization. And this year we raised, we just finished our campaign. We raised over $120,000 for the oh Bailey Bouchers. So we're really excited about that partnership. Last year it was Friends of the Children, which is a really amazing mentoring organization for at-risk kids. So we um, choose an organization every year and a group of employees um, kind of helps get together and choose and then really rallies the whole company around um, mm-hmm. an individual charity. You know, and then at home, um, you know, my wife and I and our children are, are philanthropy is a piece of what we do and, and kind of who we are. So we do everything from um, at the holidays, we give a, a gift to our kids is their ability to direct um, uh, to a charity of their choice. Some choose, you know, environmental charities, some choose homeless charities. And so that's part of their holiday gift is where they want kind of money to go. And then obviously we invest in organizations that just speak to us and that we think are really um, important to doing great work, um, you know, in our community too. That's amazing. And and what, what are you most excited about right now with Stanmar? Like uh, what projects are you working well, on? Well, we, you know, we just started this initiative called Canvas for Good that I'm really excited about. So for us, it was this idea that the T-shirt, something super basic, could be used as this kind of vehicle for um, doing good things. Not just, you know, we talked about manufacturing and the people who help support the people at Sanmar. But I'll give you a great example. This was just recently. the uh, There was a boy, I think he was in the Georgia, Florida, who was a University of Tennessee fan. It's made pretty national news. He couldn't afford a UT shirt. So he took like a T-shirt and he drew this... UT and kind of stuck it on his shirt and got bullied at school for this kind of homemade shirt. Well, it became news and the University of Tennessee saw it and said, we're going to make that one of our official shirts, this little kid's kind of design. Love it. Um, and, you know, actually <laughs> ordered a ton of orange t-shirts from us, are printing them like crazy and kind of selling it to people. But it was this really cool story of like this community and the school community rallying around this kid who was bullied and, and embracing his homemade design in, in a neat way. And, and so um, a t-shirt can be used in a lot of powerful ways. So Canvas for Good is just this kind of campaign that we're doing with our customers to try to tell some of these stories of how not just we're doing things in our in our world, in the manufacturing world, but things our customers are doing to build community, to help raise funds for great organizations, and to kind of celebrate that what you can do um, you know, with, with clothing to help just reframe people. We're not just in the business of selling T-shirts. We're in the business of building community. I love that. So tell me about the kids. There's how many kids? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Six kids. Six kids. Six kids. We're a blended family. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it six kids, seven to 17, three boys and three girls. Nice. And it's, um, I, I tell people that having, um, having a big family is more fun than <laughs> I ever thought and also a lot more challenging than I, oh, than yeah. I ever thought. The but, chaos. There's never, I mean, with three kids, there's literally never not two that are fighting. And when people have two kids, I'm like, it seems so peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, there's just a level of energy in the house mm-hmm. that's um, that's you know it's just a high energy all the time, which is sometimes hard. So um, it's Jeremy slash Dad makes T-shirts. That's what they think that you do. I you know I think certainly the younger kids, although at least the oldest one, I took her with me to Honduras last year, and it was a really cool experience. We support this um, organization uh, that it's a brigade of doctors that come called Touching Hands Project, and they do hand surgeries. So she helped. She speaks some Spanish, so she talk to these kids who are having these surgeries. She got to actually scrub in with the doctors. Um, she ra- she got donations of toys from all of her friends, and we went to a boys and girls orphanage, and we delivered toys um, and played with all the kids. And, and she will never forget that trip. It was an amazing experience. It really was. Um, you know, I think for her, I think, but also for me and the chance to spend time just with her and and to have that experience together was really, yeah. really cool. That, I have to say, is one of the things, and I've known you since, obviously, well, not obviously to the listeners, but obviously to me for your whole life. And you've always been so 
sweet and kind and generous and heart-led and the way that you are with all of the kids and making one-on-one time for that many kids is the thing I'm most in awe of with you beyond Sanmar. Like yeah. you're such a good dad and so hands-on and so deliberate about messaging. Um, even just what you were telling me before the podcast started about failure, yeah. I liked. Yeah. Like I was saying, hey, Jer, like you haven't had much failure. And you started saying that like when the kids have um, things that disappoint them, that you give examples of times in your life. Well, I started. I, uh, I started to feel bad about myself because I went through all the things that, like, I had. I had wanted in life, whether it was jobs, whether it was schools, different things. But I think that failure is a part of. Look, it's it, nobody goes through life and everything works out. And I actually think for our kids, having them, you know, have things where they're not successful and 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 hopefully working really hard and overcoming that, I think, is the best life lesson that we can give our kids. That sense of resiliency. I think as parents today, and I'm the most guilty of this, but we try to kind of just pave this really easy path for all of our kids. And But they're so humble, all of them. Well, they're so I, sweet about yeah. it. And the, the active parenting part about messaging to the kids and being consistent and exposing them to different things, I think is so important. Uh, absolutely. I mean, taking Elise to Honduras and just showing her what that part of the world looks like and the poverty that exists. And I mean, it was, was great. And I, it's something I'd love to do with the other kids at the right age. I mean, um, you know, when you make apparel, you're not, you're, you're going to developing countries. And so you get to see a lot of the world and you recognize how lucky we all are to, uh, you know, I tell people you were kind of, you won the lottery just being born in the United States and the opportunities that we have here. I completely, completely yeah. agree. And so you've got the business, you've got the gajillion kids, and I know you've got all sorts of outdoor activities that you enjoy and travel for fun. But how do you personally unwind if you just have like 20 minutes? What do you do to unwind so that you can uh, lose some stress? You know, I, I I figured out at some point along the line that the, that being active and being outdoors is the, is the thing that really kind of beyond my kids and my family and my wife that really makes me happy. So whenever I get the chance to do those things, uh, I, I really t- try to take advantage yeah, of it. And you're good at all of them, which makes me sick. Well, no, I'm, like I'm like, mediocre. I've done a lot of sporting uh, things with you. I'm like, what are you not good at? I'm yeah. still looking. I'm just, I'm mediocre at a lot of no. things, but I'm, I really like, I mean, if I can, you know, for me, skiing in the winter is, is okay. important. And check. Just, I know. But... Double black diamonds. Yes. No, but being, Tennis, but being outside. Check. And being active. Those are the things I really like. This is my always my final question. What fuels you? What's your ultimate legacy? There's a few things. I mean, one, in a family business, I think that I'm my job is to be like a steward of this business, to have it be there for the next generation, that it is thriving and available to kind of my kids, to my nieces, if it's something that they want to go into. So I, 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 I think about that a lot, that my job is not is a steward of kind of of this business. I also really think about that piece of um, making a difference that is uh, what's really impactful kind of to me. I, um, if I, if, you know, when I think I've made a difference in other people's lives, that's what uh, gets me really kind of uh, makes me feel good. That's what gets me up in the morning, gets me uh, excited about coming to work is the chance to make a difference for people's lives. I love it. Thanks so much. Super fun. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.